Welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America, episode 46. So much news, so many interesting stories, and I am going to be drinking my Jose Cuervo Silver with Baja Bob's sugar-free and ice on this nice July night. Hasn't July nights in San Francisco been terrific, I have to say. In all my years, through all the decades, probably all my family generations, I don't think we've had a better July than now. So there's something, you know, something upside about global warming, I guess. I think it's been the most warm nights July in San Francisco ever. I think I've only had to put my heater on once. And there were several nights that I did, couldn't even bear the thought of getting in my hot 104 Fahrenheit jacuzzi because it's just too warm. So, wow. See, July for me is torture here in the city. I have to get out. I'm almost I'm out almost every weekend because it's just so unbearably uh, humid and cold. And humid and cold is not comfortable, especially when your brain's like, it's supposed to be summer. What's going on? <laughs> like, by Friday, I'm like, peace out. I'm out of here. <laughs> just a couple days, even if it's the Russian River, just to be like, this is normal. Okay, sun. I feel it. I see it. People playing, swimming. This is summer. Okay. My brain goes, okay, okay, okay. You know, seasons matter. And you have a seasonless area sometimes in SF. We don't really have seasons. So you have to make sure you get those seasons. It's a good margarita. Baja Bob's sugar-free mixer. And a shot and a half of Jose Cuervo tequila. Clear. It's delicious. Okay. Well, I want to talk about what I had mentioned on previous... Well, not the most previous. We have some continuing, but episode that I had talked about before about my solution for this whole issue of the Confederate monuments and the Confederate symbolisms and the Confederate everything in the South and how um, the solution is to sell them at private auction to collectors and give the money to the city to benefit all people. And, you know, reparations money would be lovely for that too. Just saying. As well as museums. Museums are the neutral space of which to tell all things historic, no matter how horrendous. Because history tells people stories. And when we learn our stories, our collective human stories, um, we have the opportunity not to repeat past mistakes. (coughs) Opportunity. Not a foregone conclusion, but it's an opportunity. And it's the proper venue for honoring people's stories. And all cultures and all groups and all political parties and everybody wants honor, right? For the most part, so if not all. So it's the solution, and it's the solution to remove all of the Confederate everything and place them in very immaculate museums to tell the stories. So my, my overall vision, what I would like to see happen... And there's going to be some interruptions because I'm batch cooking and doing laundry and doing this. 
Hence the margarita. <laughs> I'm going to let that thaw. making some batch um, spaghetti pasta What is what I'm making. Um, and so you'll hear noises. You might hear some walking upstairs. It's fine. All is good. You know, it's... It's, I think it's really important to have a trifecta of the Confederate um, monuments, flags, paraphernalia, everything in contingency right alongside with the Native American tribes of the areas of the South, as well right alongside the blacks from various areas that were uh, relocated. We'll get into that whole thing, too. Ay, ay, ay. Um... So that it's like this trifecta of cultures. The white colonists turned independent post-British war. Then, and pre, and the obviously the first persecuted groups, which were the Native Americans of the land, way before, I believe, way before any blackface donned America, it was the Native Americans that had the first encounters back in the colonial days. You know, so all of these stories, white culture, various Native American tribes, <clears throat> and blacks need to be honored in the same space with all of it. The whole, like, nothing held back. I think we're at a place in, the, in, in history now where we can tell the full stories. We don't have to hold back and we don't have to be afraid. Now, how that translates into curriculum, I'm not, you know, that's the problem with critical race theory is it wasn't, it was rushed and that's a, you don't rush stuff like this. I appreciate the heart of those behind critical race. I don't appreciate the methodology and the rollout because it, you don't make a mad dash because the, the, the temperature seems fine. You have to really think this through and get input from all groups before you roll out a curriculum. So, you know, in time, Dems, my Dems, will go, yeah, that was also like defund the police, not well thought out. No. We ran with our hearts and we forgot that, uh, yeah, different stages and input needs to be included in trust built. And yes, and just because it isn't immediate and just because it's been so delayed doesn't mean you go into it thoughtlessly or you see what happened, the backlash. And then people get into fighting, not thinking, not listening, not perceiving. And a good idea, which is critical race theory, gets branded and minds close and people don't want to hear about it. So we cannot do mad, mad stabs of opportunistic grabs. Fails every time. Okay, far left. Fails every time. Don't do it. Okay. Have the passion, but have the patience with the passion, will you? Okay, so my idea would be um, to have all of the Confederate monuments removed and Confederate everything removed, but not destroyed. You know, placed in this type of, um, I would say, almost like a chain. I mean, I don't know what the Southerners think about this, but... It would be nice to have, like, 
the same model in all the different regions that would have this trifecta of Native Americans of the regions, whites and blacks of that. Because I think that's going to differ in areas like Texas versus areas like Arkansas versus areas like Mississippi versus area like each each area has their own there's some crossover themes i'm not saying there's not but i think there's also uniqueness in the american south and regions and i think that's deserving if we really want to go with honor here then i think it needs to be a chain of museums that has agreed upon well thought out no rush but well thought out standards of you know, a uh, point, like a mission statement or something where it comes up with these three. And it's understood that in every replicated museum will be these equal representation of all three groups. So that it's really safe and safe space for all groups, no matter what ancestors did what, and where lectures can be had and educational talks, descendants can share their personal stories. I'm descendants of all. Tribes, blacks, whites, plantation owners. And, you know, everybody learns and everybody gets honored and everybody learns a little bit more about this country's history. And kind of the same thing, you know, when the Civil War was over, the expectation was, well, you'll get over it in time and come on, join the Union. I think we can safely say that's never happening. So. Not only is it never happening, an insurrection happened. And, yeah. So part of a solution, I think, to that is proper honoring of the past and refocusing those who are passionate about their history, no matter matter the evils, on this kind of historical focus, rather than trying to overthrow the, the White House and such. January 6th is what I'm saying. So that hasn't happened yet, but what has happened is a list of um, museums that I found that I'm curious about visiting at some point, and I just wanted to read them off. American Civil War Museum, Exploring the Unparalleled Significance of the Civil War, acwm.org, Texas Civil War Museum, the National Confederate Museum, Confederate Relic Room, sc.gov, Confederate Memorial Hall Museum, oldest museum in Louisiana, confederatemuseum.com, Atoka Museum and Civil War Cemetery, Oklahoma Historical Society, oakhistory.org, Museum of Southern History homepage, museumsouthernhistory.com, National Civil War Museum, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Missouri Civil War Museum, mcwm.org North Carolina Civil War History Center of Fayetteville ncivilwarcenter.org Southern Museum that's kind of generic Virginia Museum of Civil War Museum at Market Hall Museum of Columbus, Georgia Battle of Fredericktown Civil War Museum so this has already been started but it's not you know, these are random stabs of local history museums, which are great. I'm not saying they can't also be there. But I think we do need this kind of like franchise of, I would say, um, museums of the American South. 
that would have that agreement and, and ground rules and like participation and full equity, diversity, inclusion, like all of it down and all 30, 33, 33, 33% given to the Native Americans, the blacks and the whites of the time and the descendants. And this kind of replicated all over the, the areas of the South. Um, for a redirection of the Confederates that still um, feel the need to continue to live out their history, I think the museums, they could work as docents, they could work as tour guides, they could run it, they could have a board, I don't know. But it has to be the ground rules of equality for all that. And I would certainly love to go and visit all of them if they ever put this idea through. I think it would be a great moneymaker. I think it would be really great, by the way, for the children of the American South to be able to go to all of these and see them equally respected um, in a kind of consistency of DEI and spark the conversations and the talks. And we all get better when we learn about each other's history, don't we? and at least have potential for more respect and understanding and empathy and admiration. And shame is a universal thing. And guess what? All those three groups have shame. Native Americans, blacks, whites, white privilege, white land ownership, whatever. Shame goes all around. No one escapes the shame train. So it talks about, you know, different talking about that and different perspectives. Um, and just education. Yeah. I mean, these things in some ways have been done, but they haven't been done with this kind of framework of equality, DEI infusion and an insurance, so to speak. Yeah. Plus, I think it's been challenging for the BIPOC community. You know, they're proud, but then, then also the sharing and the sharing of space and the way, and, you know, and how that, that's kind of new how that would work, um, but needed, needed. Um, yeah, and I think when every population is honored, then healing can facilitate. And do we not agree that the South still needs healing? I think definitely. Um, so I would like to see that happen. So this is an idea. But in the meantime, there are several museums of the Civil War you can visit. And um, regardless of your beliefs, um, I think it's just helpful to know our country's history, you know, and the people that lived here before us, and we're all the descendants of some. And, and we're not. Also, there's a lot of foreigners here that are curious, like to know, that don't know. Europeans and people from different countries that come here and are curious you know, and only have movies, you know, or some documentaries, but mostly just movies or stereotypes to rely on. So, I think Margaret Mead would appreciate this. <laughs> Gone with the wind, author. Honor can heal a lot. I think this is the way to do it. And for a budget to be um, specifically allocated by the federal government in this kind of historical museum. Because obviously some states are more wealthy than others and 
it should be equality even in the um, in the budget. You know, there's no reason Mississippi should have a less budget than, say, North Carolina, for example, or Virginia, for that matter. So that's my idea. <laughs> okay, so make it happen, whoever you are out there. <laughs> Let's get this going. I want to see those museums. I want to hear the stories. Okay. Um, let's talk about news now. I don't even know how to call that. Well, I'm not going to title that part. Okay. Like, what do I even call it? It's going to be a late night. But a good night. I'm curious about our new DA. I think we should start with that. Well, I helped vote Chester Boudin out of office. I didn't care he was so-called progressive. Um, a lot of Republicans were very confused by San Francisco as they rec- as they recognize it as an ultra-liberal city, which it is and is not. <laughs> as many generations know. We are and we aren't. We're very pragmatic. We're very centrist. Yes, with a lot of leftist leanings, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty, (laughs) we will oust no matter how progressive somebody is, if it's not working. We're very pragmatic. Jessica Boudin, you know, just was too soft on crime. And in the wake of defund the police, you know, it really started um, what I guess was all along the master plan of which many a white dem was unaware of which was an underground BIPOC crime ring, organized crime ring with getaway cars. And, well, of course, the whole nation saw that with the Louis Vuitton and the Walgreens and the CVS and the consistency. The difference was it wasn't looting. We didn't know what else to call it at the time because that's all we had as a frame of reference was looting. But, no, it was organized crime, and that was correctly phrased because there were getaway cars. This is a plan. So, okay, defund the police so there won't be so many police that BIPOC organized crime can rise up. Oh, and Jessica Boudin right in the pocket of it all to just do nothing. And that's why we're like, er, no. <laughs> we're not going to have Union Square go down like that. So, bye-bye, Jessica Boudin and your progressive failed agenda. Um, yeah, which didn't work. And now it's safe again. We're more safe than before. And also the commitment of Mayor Breed to fully fund the police. Yeah. Let me find out about the new new gal. So that's why we um, recalled him. Because progressive alone does not a Democrat's way. You have to be effective. And if you're not effective, you can have a heart of gold. So you could walk on water. It's bye-bye. I, I mean, we need to be realistic here. So that's the reason. Okay, this one is by Eric Tang. Friday by SFGate. Last Friday, MSN. Inside horrible, icy first meeting ooh, held by San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. I'll title this SF's new DA. After being sworn in San Francisco's new district attorney at City Hall on Friday, Brooke Jenkins, appointed by Marilyn Reed to replace the recalled Chester Boudin, traveled to her new office to hold her first meeting with around 25 senior staffers. So she's a attractive, not too old, 
I would guess um, black woman. Multiple people in attendance who requested an anonymity out of fear of retaliation described the approximate 20-minute meeting as horrible, icy, uncomfortable, and at times insane. Okay. Should not be surprising that Jenkins, who left the DA's office in October 2021 to volunteer for the recall campaign, <laughs> would be met. Okay, well, you know, a little bit of a, a, a you know, <laughs> an oppositional interest there would be met with apprehension by the staffers in attendance. Jenkins had stylized herself as a progressive, but many progressives dispute that label. Jenkins was a sharp critic of Boudin. Well, so was I. It was terrible. So it was. So were many. In the months leading up to the recall election, and members of the office who spoke to SF Gate felt she crossed the line with some of her campaign attacks. Most people in the room were hired by either Boudin or his predecessor, George Gascon, Gascon, with only a handful of predating Gascon tenure that began in 2011. Meeting attendees said that Jenkins opened her remarks by stating that even though she campaigned for the recall, she still cares about Boudin hires. The attendees said that Jenkins did not offer many specifics on how she would run the office, so at one point in the meeting, someone asked if she had any concrete directives. Jenkins responded she wanted a review of every single case in which a plea offer had been made but not yet accepted by the suspect, and the purpose of this review would be to determine which plea offers to withdraw. When someone told Jenkins that would mean reviewing thousands of cases, she said then she wanted to prioritize drug cases. The staffers said Jenkins did not delineate between cases of possession, usually drug users, and cases of possession with intent to sell, usually drug dealers, and offered no timeline for when this task was supposed to be completed. She concluded the meeting by telling people in attendance that no one would be fired on Friday, but she plans on meeting with people in the near future for possible reshuffling of the office. Okay, so it sounds like a meet and greet. Jenkins declined to be interviewed for this story. A, so, a source close to Jenkins, who was briefed in the meeting but not authorized to speak publicly, said the other attendees' account of what was said is accurate, but that Jenkins held the meeting primarily to LA staffers' fears, as opposed to outlining her policy plans. True. All of the attendees who spoke with SF Gates said they were struck by two things. One, number one, what they described as a lack of understanding about what managing the office requires. And two, the fact that Jenkins was accompanied by Andrea Bress, who serves as Breed's deputy chief of staff. Bress, who did not participate in the meeting but observed, was described as a chaperone. I mean, I think that's safe. I, th I think good call on that by one of the attendees. The mayor's office told SF Gate that it's providing some basic transitional support to get Jenkins situated in the office while she quickly stops up. We have no role in any policy making or discussions in the office, the mayor's office add, added. How Jenkins runs the DA's office in the coming months will be a source of intrigue both locally and nationally. Some onlookers believe the selection of Jenkins might lead Boudin to seek his old office in the uncupping. Un oh, you better not. In the upcoming November elections. No thanks. Jenkins has stated she believes in balancing reform and accountability, voicing support for alternatives in incarceration such as diversion programs. She had also previously said the specific Boudin era reforms she wanted to revoke were the elimination of cash bail the policy of not charging juveniles as adults, and the elimination of gang enhancements. Those who attended Friday's meeting said none of the policies came up, and there were no discussion of future operations at office beyond the request review of drug cases. 
Yeah. Well, I'm fine with that. I don't think she's expected to just vomit up every agenda at the first meeting. So calm the heck down, San Francisco. Just take a beat. Let her make her statement and reassure people. Since that was the objective of the 20-minute meeting, how much can you say in 20 minutes? Okay, there's another article on her. Okay. New San Francisco DA addresses criticism, shares vision, Delin Sunday, CBS SF Bay Area. San Francisco, KPIX, San Francisco, New District Attorney Brooke Jenkins said the the state of the city is a crisis. On Sunday, she spoke to KPIX about her priorities for the DA's office. Now she plans to balance reform and accountability. When asked if she'll be ridding the office of any people who are still loyal to her predecessor, Chessa Jenkins said, I have not made any personnel decisions at this time. Not a question I can answer right now. You just have to keep trying to make the mission clear, and there will be people who don't buy in, and that's fine. I'd come into this office to unify us. I don't want us to be divided by who was hired by which administration. I want us to work together for the same thing, which is what's best for San Francisco and keeping San Franciscans safe. Jenkins said. She said her number one priority is to get all the attorneys in her office to work toward changes she puts in place. We will have accountability. We will no longer, oh heavens, please let this be true. We will no longer be a safe haven for criminal activity. Thank you. I mean, approved. (laughs) Thank you. We will no longer be a safe haven for criminal activity. Can we say it louder? Can we write it in the sky? Can we put it on the side of the Golden Gate Bridge? Gosh, and that we no longer are indifferent to property crime and drug crime here in San Francisco. Thank you. Long overdue. Some people know that. We can't be treating drug sales as victimless crimes anymore because they are true victims. People are dying. And so accountability, as I said, is there's no one size fits all. We should always be looking at each individual case and each independent. That sounds very reasonable. And each icy meeting. What I this is great. And each offender for their particular circumstance. So I don't want to sit here and say jail is right for every case for every offender. But we need to be looking critically at each case to see what would be just a method of accountability in that situation, Jenkins explained. She said she will bring back the options of cash bail, gang enhancements, and the ability to try minors as as adults. She said she would. I thought it just said before that she would not. Okay, I'm a little confused on that. Okay, this article says she said she will bring back the option of cash bail, gang enhancements, and ability to try minors as adults in extreme cases. The biggest misconception of me is that I want to return to some tough on crime. We need that so bad. A very, very conservative approach. I want people to truly understand that reform is personal to me, right? Fairness and equity in our system is personal to me. It's part of why I do this work. I want to be a diverse reflection in the courtroom, not just the defense side, but on the prosecution side, which historically has not been diverse, Jenkins says. 
She said her office will continue to work with her predecessor starting an uncovering wrongful convictions. She also emphasized that she will not, that she will hold the police accountable. My family has been impacted by police violence and misconduct. I am black and Latina. It affects my communities the most. And so it's not something that again is theoretical for me. It's part of my lived experience. And so it's not something that I, so it is something I take very seriously. And I believe we can both have a working relationship with the police department. Also explain to them and make it clear when we're in, when there is misconduct, there will be accountability on that side too. She is, temper- she is tempering expectations and asking for patience since she has to run a November special election. She said she will do her best in the next several months to move her agenda along and provide results to the people of San Francisco. It's going to take more than just me. I'm going to take partnership with other government agencies, nonprofit orgs, rehab services, housing services, so we can address fully the needs of those who are struggling. When asked about her reaction to Chessa leaving, the door open to running again this November, she smiled and said, it'll be up to the voters, which means it will be a cold in hell before Chessa Bodine ever resumes the office. So there. <laughs> Not that I have an opinion about it or anything. I'm sorry. He was horrendous. Horrible. My God. You know? All heart, no head does not work in the city of San Francisco, folks. It does not. And it's just unwise. So I like the cut of her jib, and I'm a fan already. Bring on the ice queen. I don't care. She's great. Okay. So many different things to talk about now. Hmm. This is kind of a segue kind of back into what I was talking about with the trifecta inclusion DEI of this idea I have of corporate, you know, chain of the museums of the American South, what hasn't happened yet. Um, But this is on the West now. And the title of it is What Happened to the California Missions Project in Schools by Cameron Kisla. Heroin. For millions of Californians growing up in the Golden State, recalls memories of sugar cubes and popsicle sticks. Oh, definitely with the sugar cubes. The common building blocks of small scale mission replicas. I definitely did mine in 1983 in Rivendell Middle School in 46th and Irving Street in the Outer Sunset, which is now gone but was there for 30 years. I made my little mission with the sugar cubes and the dye little drip of dye to have the colors. Oh, definitely scaled. I still remember that in the mid to early 80s. No, early 80s. But the exercise once common for fourth grade students, I was third grade in that, had learned about the state's history, has faded from many schools' curricula. So what happened? First, a clarification. Despite its prevalence, a completion of missions project was never mandatory, but it's been a popular assignment for some time in L.A. Unified School District spokesperson explained in an emailed statement. The project was intended to speak a strong Spanish influence in California, culture, language, architecture, the spokesperson wrote. Okay, so it was never required, but given once widespread assignment, what led to the drop of popularity people have noticed now? In short, California Department of Education acknowledges some change was necessary. In 2016, the state's new educational framework raised a pair of issues with the long-running tradition. 
First, it failed to adequately teach the students what the mission period was like for those who experienced it. And second, it was possibly offensive in that it minimized the way Native Americans were treated. The problem with the mission, mission period, according to the framework of the Department of Education, while Native Americans were initially attracted to music missions with food, wealth, and the pageantry of the Roman Catholic Church, they were forced to stay and work for the Spanish explorers, build Presidio forces, cattle ranches, and pueblos. The imposition of forced labor and high, highly structured living arrangements degraded individuals, constrained families circumscribed native culture and adversely impacted scores of communities according to the framework in addition tens of thousands of native americans died as the population plummeted from 72,000 to 18,000 the high death rate was due primarily to the introduction of diseases for which the native population did not have immunity as well as the hardships of forced labor separation from the traditional ways of life the framework explained while some of the survivors worked to reinforce their indigenous kinship relations while practicing Catholicism, others rebelled, fleeing from the Padres, while a few Indians openly revolted and killed missionaries, according to the CDOE. From sugar cubes to comprehension, the more troublesome part of the mission's history was being lost in the focus of their architecture. The school should focus on the daily experience of missions rather than on building structures themselves, the framework explained. Building missions from sugar cubes or popsicle sticks does not help students understand the period and is offensive to many, the document added. Instead, students should have access to multiple sources to help them understand the lives of different groups of people who lived and around the mission so that students can place them in comparative context. Specifically, students need to learn more about how indigenous people were impacted by the missions, said Cindy Mata, Associate Director of UCLA History Geography Project, a group of history educators who emphasize culturally relevant curriculum, research-based practices designed to meet the needs of a diverse student body. One of the things we're really trying to get across is how people's lives are affected by the missions, particularly Native peoples. There's just a high focus on the buildings and the structures themselves, but not the people who were affected by those structures, Mata said. These changes can be seen in the new LAUST's textbooks, which adopted in 2019, the school's district spokesperson explained. The new framework discourages teachers from projects such as building missions and setting teaches about the Span impact of Spanish colonization on indigenous peoples. Fourth grade students younger were able to grasp the concept of people being treated fairly or unfairly and how factors impact people in a community. The spokesperson said, reaction to a post-diorama reality. To be sure, there are some Californians out there who enjoyed the assignment. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed building the Sugar Cube mission. Alta Loma resident Becky Ramirez told the Los Angeles Daily News in 2017 that she and her then nine-year-old Sean bonded the rec recreating the Mission San Francisco de Asis, <clears throat> which is in the Bay Area. Um, he really got a lot out of it, Ramirez said. It was something he actually enjoyed working on together, and I feel my son will never forget that. But opponents of the mission project made clear they believed in t its time had passed. It celebrated the framework change. The editorial board of the LA Times cried about the revision, citing large amounts of labor required by the students and often their parents and the project's dubious educational value. If there was ever an educational reform that everyone should love, this is it, the board wrote. But it's more than just painstaking work of glowing popsicle sticks that should have doomed the missions project. The editorial board argued a school should have emphasized the perspective of Native American communities whose ancestors worked and died building the missions and surrounding structures. The models might be justified if they taught students of something of greater value about the missions, such as their impact on California Indians, but they don't. My, my school did, 
but my school was a progressive alternative school, private school. The board concluded. The board deferred to Tuyan Tran, assistant director of the California History Social Science Project, to explain why. American Indians have likely likened the mission projects to projects that require students to recreate plantations in American South or concentration. Not true. Concentration at camp, uh, camps in Germany. Tran wrote, what comes next? While telling the first story of indigenous people suffering is definitely important, it's just part of the larger tale, said Maud of UCLA History Geography Project. Her group is creating teaching materials that instructors can use to tell a fuller story of the state's history, which includes highlighting local people's lives outside of the interactions of missionaries. One lesson about the experience of San Bernardino natives before and during and after the mission period. Mita explained. We thought it was really important to highlight all three periods because we talk a lot about Native folk and when it comes to things that were done to them, it's not so much time focusing on how they were sovereign nations and sovereign people before colonization. While the mission project has been a recent focus, modesty's other topics would be ready for re-examination. Anytime folks were come to California, they were encouraged encroaching on Native lands and Native people. That includes periods like the gold rush, which Indigenous people were impacted, as were many Chinese immigrants and others. We're trying to make history relatable, and I understand that but how are we also balancing us being intentional inclusive multiple people that were affected in those time periods then that we highlight she asked she asked Mata who helped the train crop who helps the train no Mata who helps train the next crop of history teachers said for the mission period in other eras instructors needed to humanize the history and help students understand what life was like in past for all people, whether those students trace their ancestry to explorers and missionaries, immigrants, or the Native Americans who were in California in the first place. What we try to highlight is the best use of our time, humanizing people from the past and reminding teachers that Native folks are still here and that they're very much members of our community now, Mata said. Agreed. Well, here's my thought on it. I'm encouraged to see more Native American resilience, Native American resurgence, as I call it, these periods where they start to come out of the clannish hiding and start to make themselves known and share and be a little bit more bold and demonstrative, and that's always going to benefit them when they do that. And sure, there's going to be people that are going to make fun and be losers and be jerks, but the majority of people will be happy and interested and curious, right? So it takes boldness and courage, honestly, and a willingness for that vision. So I don't think it's so much about the sugar cubes and recreating the architecture. I think one of those things is that it's engaging. Hey, kids play with Legos. I know I sure did. So getting the attention span um, to recreate a, you know, a diorama or a a mission replica and sugar cubes is something that kids can relate to in the form of play. And I, at least with my experience, I had a lot of progressive, it was almost like a hippie Waldorf alternative hobbit school. It was called Rivendell after all. <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, my teachers were hippies in San Francisco and 46 and Irving Street that I went to for three years at school. And it was private school. And they did also really tell a lot of the tragedies of the Native Americans and included that as we were building and would show slides and movies and, I don't know, like videos. It was, we had to, you know, it was a private school, so they had more resources. We even had computers, ooh, at the time. And, um, you know, it was full inclusive. It was, we were actively doing this and being lectured to and having the history and all of it. But I think it's a gimmick to get kids engaged and focused. 
And I think that's probably the point of the mission recreation more so than like the value of the teaching is to what do you do to keep attention? You know, kids at that age, how much history can they truly absorb? You have to have a didactic, interactive, like hands-on to keep them focused too. I also do remember going to the Miwok tribe village when I was younger on through them and also the several, several of the California missions on field trips um, with that school in contingency with the building. So it was like obviously the best. It was really an amazing school, quite honestly, but not every school has that budget or has that ability to do that. Um, I don't think we ditched the sugar cubes. I think we, again, thoughtfully include the uh, conversations of the relative tribes that are in the area and ideally invite them to come to talk to schools and do the dances and share about the culture and have more infusion of this cultural, um, you know. And, you know, I think the tribes are getting more receptive to this as we are getting more receptive to respect and how they were able to sustain the earth so long. And we're destroying it in a hot minute. So I think there is some interest in that. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be without some bias or people that take pot shots. But I think um, I think we don't necessarily have to, you know, it's like, you know, when you have kids, I don't have kids, but if I did and others that do, you, you kind of like that connection of, oh, I remember building the sugar cube missions. It's like a contingency and a habit. It doesn't have to be a big old thing. Do a small little representation, right? Or make bigger sugar cubes. I don't know. But it, it kind of is nostalgic, you know, and I think it should be part of the, the education myself. But I think it should be expanded, right? I had a good, I had really progressive teachers that like, you know, 360 degrees and all that. So, I don't know. I only have 20 minutes left. I'm trying to, let's, well, well, while we're on this topic, okay. I don't know if I had the other, so many topics. Let's just kind of go with the theme. So lately, conservatives are taking I guess conservatives in Texas, is it Texas? Are taking a page from the progressive playbook in renaming things. And they were trying to rename slavery as involuntary relocation. I guess to make it sound nicer (laughs) to younger kids involuntary relocation. Well, the problem obviously with involuntary relocation is that was not the extent of their experience. They were not just, you know, picked up from Africa and dropped off and involuntarily relocated. (laughs) They were forced labor and treated horrendously in all ways. And it was slavery. So this article by the Atlantic opinion, Graham Wood yesterday, just say slavery, just call it what it is. But this, again, before I read the article, this this goes to the point of what I've been saying about shame and white shame, particularly. We talk about white privilege all the time. Who, who talks about white shame? No one. Not even us white people. There's no, like, circle group about white shame. 
call it white fragility. That's not the same. Okay. So part of the Museum of the American South thing that I was thinking of was it could give a platform to discuss white shame. Just as there's black shame and all kinds of shame, shame around all over. Um, unique and different with some similar qualities, but overall a, a different. So that even, okay, it is Texas and Dallas specifically, they have to try to relabel slavery because it's just too harsh and call it involuntary relocation. It, where does that come from? It comes from white shame. And I can tell you as a white person growing up, there was no like tools to, we were just, we taught history, taught a bunch of facts and how awful white people were. And we, they, we did this, we did that, we did that, we did that laundry list of evil. And you just sit there like, and what do I do with all this? <laughs> I was really affected by it. And specifically my junior year of high school when I learned about the Holocaust. And it's like, how does a young developing child take on so much historical ancestral evil in terms of a racial group? You're taught all these awful things about people that look like you. And you're supposed to just then go to recess, go to lunch. And that's not part of the conversation as, as, as of now to this day. The focus is on BIPOC. I'm not saying it shouldn't be on BIPOC. I'm just saying there's an absence that's clear, that's white shame, and we don't know how to deal with it, and we don't know how to talk about it, and there is no circle group for it. There is no support, safe space. No, it's all BIPOC, you know, reparations, and let's make everything right. And how do we make things right if we don't talk about white shame? I'd like to know, because I think it's integrally part of the healing, is how do we? talk about that. No BIPOC person has any kind of understanding of what it is to be a white person, which is not all privilege and lollipops and rainbows. And just because you're not stopped by cops all the time doesn't mean your life's rosy. Um, you have to grow up with a lot of horrible history lessons of people that look like you and somehow then have to like metabolize all that with no guidance. And either you become racist or you become the opposite. You're an advocate, right? But there's no discussion of that. Why? BIPOC has no idea what that's like. They see white privilege and they think that's all that is. Nope. And then white people don't have a way to talk about it. Nope. It's just the unsaid topic that I'm saying here on my podcast. So let's talk about this one. In my seventh, so maybe the museums I'm saying would give a platform for this. In my seventh grade Latin class, 30 years ago in Dallas, one of my classmates was black. When we learned about the noun service, the root of English words such as servile, service, surf, one of the white students instinctively defied the textbook definition and translated it as servant. Service poem amat. The servant loves the girl. The lone black student let this translation slide once, then twice, before bellowing, slave. It means slave. He was right. That was the translation in our book. In ancient Rome, a service was most likely not a freely contracted guy who answered your Craigslist ad, but a human being owned by another. The moment was uncomfortable, and usefully so. No one made that mistake again. Euphemism is as the kids nowadays cringe, and ever more so than when the official policy of institutions that have power over others. Texas recently entertained a particularly nauseating modification to its school curriculum, a doozy of euphemism 
in much the same vein, according to Texas Tribune, an advisory, power, advisory panel proposed that chattel slavery be taught to second graders as involuntary relocation. I would say that's just deception. In this season of disrupted air travel, involuntary relocation sounds like a term of an art gate agent might use to tell you that you're stuck in Detroit indefinitely, but now have a $10 coupon to Chick-fil-A to relieve your suffering. Texas Board of Education sent the proposal back for reconsideration, thus demonstrating that certain ideas are too crazy even for it. (laughs) Texas is like, this is too crazy even for us. The panel had not explained its rationale and did not respond to my request for one, but other policy changes in Texas schools hint at how such phrasing might have come to be. Proposed legislation in Texas has forbidden lessons that make might make students feel discomfort as a result of their race. Well, guess what? I felt overwhelmingly discomfort as a result of my race of learning about how other people that look like me did so many awful things for all eternity for every single group. And that's what we have to deal with. I'm de- deviating. You know, the feeling of the discomfort, I, that's putting it mildly. Intense, it, it programs self-hatred and self-loathing and white shame. And none of this is talked about. No, no, white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, white fragility. What about the other stuff? The white shame. I mean, you can't have shame. You have all these things. Yeah, we have all the stuff, all the stuff, because it's about the stuff, right? No, it's not about the stuff. It's about connection. Anyway, so um, feel discomfort. Sure. Yeah, then we don't sugarcoat it and then dumb down the phrasing of the institution of slavery as involuntary relocation, because God forbid a second grader feels. But the point is, all of this should be guided by psychologists and child psychologists who know every stage of development of children and are wonderful guides to help with all this. And where are they? Never in the articles. They have to be. They're the experts. But then disregarded, right? But should be consulted and guiding policy like critical race theory, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, we don't want them coming in and ruining all our political agendas. They might actually not agree with everything. That's right. They might actually have the child's interest at heart more than political agenda. Maybe that's better for the safety of all. One way to keep students from feeling discomfort is to remind them they are not responsible for the crimes of others. Other, another is to describe those crimes in reassuring tones to diminish their criminality, which might soothe some students while making others squeezy. The panel's recommendation is so consistent with the latter approach. Texas Senate Bill 3 provides further context for the recommendation. One provision forbids teachers from teaching the historical interpretation offered by the 619 Project, which identifies slavery as foundational to America rather than contrary to America's founding principles of liberty and equality. The bill also requires students to learn about Frederick Douglass, who beheld this controversy with inevitable clarity when he likened American ideals and American government to a ship and a compass. The one may point right and the other steer wrong. Involuntary relocation could originate from 1619 partisans trying to give teachers more freedom to discuss slavery by avoiding the politically loaded term. The 11-member panel that recommended the term not does not, on first glance, look like a neo-Confederate deep-cover group. At least two of the nine members are black and five others are Latino names. Such an end 
run around the prohibitions would nonetheless regrettably suggest that slavery was some sort of a traveler's woe rather than a crime against humanity. Yeah, I don't think we changed the name. Uh, let's see, he's writing, he's a great writer, but let's get to the gist here. Equally misguided reasoning and sent to other categories, not homelessness, but people experiencing homelessness, not Jew, but Jewish person. The theory seems to be that the longer the noun phrase, the more affirming the maligned individual's humanity, the extra verbiage pads an odious concept like bubble wrap, protecting it and making those uncomfortable from direct contact with the offending material. But it also protects the offending material from the scrutiny it deserves. The delicacy and preciousness of the phrase enslaved person if it did really center in the humanity of slave, would be untrue to the nature of slavery itself, which banished the humanity of all involved, about as far away as it practiced good. If slave is a better word to hear, then the word is doing its job. Amen. And should not be sweetened. Involuntary re relocation is a sprinkle of splenda on slavery, and I hope to never hear it again from a teacher, gate agent, or anyone else. I asked my classmate what he thought of all this. We had not corresponded in decades. He wrote back fast. Ne frats mate creden metentum, it's all in Latin, eos vertico studio, sic amor dictat. He wrote back, lest my brothers believe a lie, I keep them in the truth as love dictates. The Texas Board of Education might consider this line as a new motto. Well said, sir. Who is this? Graham Wood. Yeah, no, we don't want to dumb down. Um, or, you know, like he said, bubble wrap the truth um, for fear that it hurts us. I, I was glad to learn the truth and learn the facts and uh, selective at that. You know, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, there was no mention of gay history, you know, more than a trifle. Um, very, very um, scant. Well, I mean, I think in California, a decent amount of Native American history. I felt like I grew up with a little bit of a little bit more than most. Um, but certainly very little feminism, very little women's suffrage, just the basics, you know, and yeah, just horrible things about white people in every possible situation. And I did not like that there was no kind of discussion group sensitivity to that, um, thoughtfulness to it and there was just this expectation we'll just learn it like what are you supposed to that's horrific information it's not that you don't teach it but then you do have to have this kind of like sound off where where white young non-racists can go oh my god <laughs> this is horrible our descendants came from this and so many oppressed so many and then you learn about the english and the irish and you're like oh and they oppressed each other too and Okay, and yeah, there wasn't that, um, I don't know what you call it, focus group, something to consider the damage that white people did, and I'm sure it wasn't the only one, endure in learning the truth, um, which is important to know, and I don't think we should change slavery to involuntary serve, you know, relocation. We should be as just as honest and truthful as all of it was to, again, honor all groups. At the same time, there does need to be this reaffirmation multiple times that just because people that look like you did all these things doesn't mean that that is your destiny or that is what you are or that is what you should do or should think or any of that. 
I think words are powerful and there does need to be more than just compassion for BIPOC and just leaving everything white as white privilege or white fragility. And I'm just saying in 2022, July right now, I'm not hearing about the other side of the coin. And I don't even know if BIPOC understands how valuable that side of the coin is because they've been so preoccupied with their, with their social justice and understandably so understandably so but compassion has to come from all areas and all sides and all around privileged or not fragile or not because when we can all tell the truth more ideally the whole truth nothing but the truth all around there can be empathy compassion healing and less division and again just you know i can say from my point of view it was I didn't have suicidal ideation, but it was close. Like, oh, that's what, you know, not my personal relatives, but like people that look like me, just the generalization of it all. It's like you you feel awful and horrific and there's no, what do you, you just go home and expect to just wake up the next day and go back to school and learn it more and then go back to, like there was no soundboard of how all that made people feel. And I think that's what's needed. And I do think psychology, child psychologists need to be right in there. They're not in there. They're excluded. I guess the far left, the far right don't want any potential interference from the experts and the child mind that may skew their agendas. I would say, screw that. Bring in the child experts to facilitate everything of this. That's what they're there for. It isn't just behavioral problems or ADD or a referral for a prescription. They should be there to use Jean Piaget's stages of development and know and educate others. You know, this is a great political idea and not appropriate for this age group, but appropriate for that age group. Or here's how we can modify it to teach it in a way that's going to be accessible for those who have expert degrees in the mind. <laughs> it's kind of obvious, but it's amazing how that still isn't really central in the art in the in the in the point of CRT or anything like CRT. You know, psychologists were dis- dismissed or not considered important. We got this kind of thing. Well, you don't got this, and we see you don't got this, right? It blew up. So, well, we're at the end of the hour. <sighs> In the next episode, <laughs> we're going to go into Michael Moore's proposed second amendment replacement i appreciate that he took time to write it gotta respect michael moore for his um, passion ideas i really wish he'd talk on china someday and talk about social justice issues with them but maybe one can hope um he doesn't have to be afraid of looking too republican michael come on you're supposed to be telling the truth no matter what it is um so we're going to talk about michael moore's proposed second amendment next episode we're going to talk about Biden and varying opinions about Biden. Um, Biden was my last choice for president. And now I feel like he was absolutely the best choice for many reasons. And I hope he does take a second term. Yeah, he's 80. I don't care. He's doing everything by the book. He's um, get moving forward with the Democratic agenda. He's doing what he can, given the executive office. And, you know... 
I, 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 you know, despite the the gaffes at times and, and Jill's, you know, mistake with the taco thing today, referring to Hispanics as tacos, I mean, what was she thinking? But, I mean, Republican or Democrat, they all just say idiotic things at times, right? They do. We're going to talk about more about the abortion um, fallout of Roe versus Wade and also about the pro-choice Christians and also about the Catholic Church's bigger agenda to eradicate themselves from the Democratic Party, apparently, which I was not aware of. Um, Also some potential um, FDA um, over-the-counter authorization for birth control, which about time. Yeah, I don't think it's harmful, and I don't think I, I think that's a long time coming. So that's exciting. There's some good things. Um, yeah, you know, I support good old Joe, and I think he has done well, uh, despite what others may hope. And I'm I'm for him. So I hope others will be as well and learn to see things in perspective. Thank you all.